You're listening to Discovering Truth with Dan Duvall. Folks, we are living in exciting times. We have just turned over the uh, decade. It is a new season, and right at the outset, we find ourselves in drama. That is coronavirus and worldwide intimidation and fear agenda. I have good news for you. At Bride Ministries, we've put together a prayer called the Coronavirus Prayer, which is found at our prayer resources page. I want to encourage all of you to grab it and to pray it because it does two things. One, crushes the agenda of fear behind coronavirus, and two, calls for the judgment of evil powers that are working behind this virus in order to bring about evil agendas in the earth. I want to encourage all of you that have continued to financially support us. Thank you for what you are doing and continuing to do. I want to encourage those of you that have been really, really uh, reaping some some growth and some empowerment and equipping off of this platform. This is good ground to sow into. We are forerunning, we are building, and you know what? The Bible says that Isaac sowed in the year of famine and reaped a hundredfold return. There is a concept in scripture that explains when we sow in times of uncertainty, there is an expanded blessing awaiting us. And so I want to encourage those of you, you can sow into what we are doing here at Bride Ministries by going to bridemovement.com or by going to our app. And we also offer text to give now, and the phone number for that is on our website on the donate page. And so I also want to let you know that my wife is going to be starting her Christian business course for the second time. This is going to be a second round of the course she taught in January. For all of you who missed it, it's going to start at the very beginning of April. And you can still sign up at bridemovement.com, either on our homepage or from our church page under classes. Now, I am introducing this podcast because I've introduced them all, but this is going to be Christian Business Podcast number three, and uh, you are going to meet an extraordinary lady named Marlene, who will be her guest. Be excited. That's coming right up. I also want to let you all know that the Bride Ministries Church continues to meet without obstruction at 7 p.m. Central Standard Time every Sunday evening. And, you know, it's so cool because as a forerunning ministry, we actually establish an entirely internet-based platform. Well, now that coronavirus is struck and there's a lot of challenges gathering large numbers of people together, we're actually over here at Bride Ministry sitting back relaxing because nothing has changed at all. You know, people are still showing up to church in their pajamas. <laughs> no one would ever know. And so we're having a great time. We do invite you to join us. We are on YouTube, Facebook, also on our live stream site, and you can catch us on Roku or Apple TV by downloading the Bride Ministries app from those platforms to your smart TV. So we are just praising God for all of the expansion that we've been able to enjoy here. And as uh, we continue to grow this church, we are also growing online groups. And of course, you get more details about all of that by attending our live church services and getting those updates 
there. So without any further ado, we're going to get right to the program. Don't go anywhere. You're listening to Discovering Truth with Dan Duvall featuring the Christian Business Podcast. My name is Christian Duvall, and I am so excited to have Dr. Marlene Carson on the Christian Business Podcast uh, today. Thank you so much for being here, Marlene. Thank you for having me. I'm excited as well. I am super excited. So before we jump into the actual podcast, I actually want to give the audience a brief introduction about how we actually met. <laughs> okay. Because the story is so divine. Yes. yes. So incredible. And it's just such a mark of how destiny just puts people, people together. Mm-hmm. So uh, Marlene's friend Lisa had been trying to get Marlene to listen to the podcast, uh, Dan Duvall's podcast for, I don't know how long months at least. And she's very busy and she said she'd get to it. Uh, when I did my kingdom business podcast with Dan, Lisa said, you have to listen to this lady. So Marlene listened to it. She sent it to her, uh, mentee and who also works in this area. And she listened to it and uh, one contacted me on Facebook and said she had listened to it 20 times. And I'm like, if anybody listens to my podcast 20 times, let's just get on the phone and talk. That's like, you put your dues in. And so I spoke to Kritesha. And then the next day I spoke to Marlene. I'm never on Facebook. I never respond really to uh, messages on Facebook. And just so happened we get on the phone and it was like we were sisters and, right. and friends, right? Mm-hmm. And so um, she had already booked her ticket. Uh, Dr. Ron Horton and I were supposed to be doing a conference this past weekend and she had already booked her ticket to go with Lisa. And I said, I'm so sorry that's been postponed. And she said, Oh, that's fine. I'm still coming. I'm like, okay. So I told Daniel, I said, Hey, we got some ladies coming to stay with us for the weekend. I don't really know them, but <laughs> it should be fine. <laughs> <laughs> and we and and uh and it came to our house and I picked them up and they're like, Do you invite strangers to your house often? I'm like, all the time. You know? <laughs> and we just had them I don't know if you should say that life on the podcast, you might get some invitations. That's actually true. Not all the time. <laughs> Only God led by the Lord. <laughs> right, exactly right. But we just had the most amazing weekend. Lisa, Marlene. Uh, Daniel and me, and we laughed, we cried, we prayed, we just did everything, Um, shared our hearts, shared our stories, shared our visions, and we just have so much work to do together. And so I am, I just can't speak highly um, enough about Dr. Marlene. I'm so excited to be a part of her world and me and me to be a part of hers. And um, I'm just going to tell you a little bit about her and then we're going to jump into the podcast because She's so impressive, and I want to give her as much time as possible. So thank you so much for being here. Thank you. So Dr. Marlene Carson is a thriver of domestic minor sex trafficking and is one of America's foremost authorities on the subject of human trafficking. In 2008, Dr. Carson founded Rahab's Hideaway, a fully comprehensive residential treatment facility. 
It is the mission of Rahab's Hideaway to develop appropriate responses to meet the needs of those who have become victims of human trafficking, prostitution, including but not limited to the development of a model facility facility that can provide refuge and facilitate recovery. Dr. Carson has over 25 years experience in marketing and promotion, as well as a track record in strategic planning for organizations that result in demonstrated growth and profitability. Her entrepreneurial spirit is more than zealous, it's results driven. Dr. Carson is a native and resident of Columbus, Ohio, but her heart for victimized women has no bounds, and she has been literally all over the country sharing her expertise and all over the world advising on sex trafficking and what to do about it. Her knowledge of human trafficking and its victims has caused her to become a sought after speaker on the subject. She has worked on and been featured on many, many broadcast websites and publications such as Katie Couric, Oprah Winfrey's website, CNN Freedom Project, as well as all types of national and local news. She is also the recipient of a uh, the Presidential Lifetime Achievement Award underneath uh, Barack Obama. And so that is just a small um, tidbit of who this incredible woman is. And um, so i just like to thank you so much for being on the show. And I can't wait to just kind of jump into the, the meat of this interview. I am so absolutely honored to be on this show with you. Awesome. Thank you. Mm -hmm. So tell me a little bit about your background. Tell me a little bit about how you grew up. What was your sure. life like before sure. all these experiences started to happen to you? So I am the youngest of five siblings raised in Columbus, Ohio, uh, mother and father both in the home. And my siblings would say I was the spoiled one. Uh, I would say I'm just the youngest one with a lot of favor. You know, just, that's just how it is. <laughs> and so uh, my grandmother lived down the street from me. We were raised in church. Um, just a very healthy family, in, in my opinion, very healthy family, um, probably was poor in some aspects, but didn't feel it or didn't realize it because our families, you know, my family provided. So if we were, we didn't know it. Um, and my mother, again, a stay at home mom was um, the homemaker. She would get up at three o'clock in the morning and start breakfast for the family, you know, and she was just that person. And so, and I, I definitely am my mother all the way, uh, just a caretaker, a nurturer. And um, I love being a kid. I just absolutely love being a kid. So it was cool. Wow. So what, what's on my mind is how do you go from that loving, warm, nurturing environment to an environment in which you become a victim of human sex trafficking? How does that happen? One of the things that I share with people is that don't think that victims of trafficking come from drug addicted, poverty, um, urban areas. That's just not the case. So anyone can become a victim of human trafficking. Um, it's more about vulnerability mm. than circumstances. You know what I'm saying? And so I became a victim of human trafficking because we were targeted. The other thing I would say is that most people um, that are targeted by traffickers are very naive to what trafficking even is. So back in the day, people would know what a pimp is, but you know, it was almost like it was a joke that this wasn't real. This was like some rapper 
on television, someone that was totally out of the realm of everyday people's lives. But the reality of it is um, traffickers prey on that vulnerability of you being naive, of you not knowing. And so that's what happened to, to our neighborhood, just not to me. It happened to our community. A trafficker moved into our community, and, and we had no idea. My parents, I was a young girl, but my parents had no idea. The community had no idea. The school had no idea. The church had no idea. And so I'm sure we're going to jump into that because one of the things that I believe is that the church needs to become aware of what trafficking is who traffickers are, and how to help victims of sex trafficking. And so for me, myself, um, my family, again, was a holistic type of family. You know, we were good. And this, when this trafficker moved into our neighborhood, they groomed. So grooming is like, um, most people would think grooming is when um, people are buying you something, providing something you may not normally have, um, giving you things, taking you places where you can't afford to go, things like that. But in our case, grooming was showing up at the um, junior high school and chaperoning, chaperoning the dance. Grooming was going to church with the family on Sundays and then having dinner with us afterwards. Grooming looked like um, babysitting for my parents when, when maybe I was locked out the house. They would be the safe house to go to. And they weren't just that for me. They were that for a lot of the people in the neighborhood. And so that's what grooming looked like. And then it became trips. And it was fun trips. Um, even in their house, they had like, you know, I'm, I'm older. So they had uh, centipede games. Girl, we used to play some centipede and air hockey. That was our thing. <laughs> While now it was like Xbox or no, it's not even Nintendo no more. Xbox. So it was um, centipede and air hockey. They had all these things for kids in their house to make us comfortable. And so then they begin to take us on trips. Our first trip was to the Columbus Zoo, which is only 40, 45 minutes from our house. And so to go to the zoo, that was something my parents were like, yeah, you can go. You know, anytime you give somebody with five kids a break, you can go. And that's how that was. And so the trip started becoming further and further away until they finally said after two years, of knowing all the parents, they knew who was financially struggling, they knew who was getting a divorce, they knew the parents that had suffered domestic violence, they knew all the dynamics of almost everyone's household in our neighborhood. And one thing I'll tell you about a trafficker, while you're asleep, traffickers are studying that family. Traffickers are studying their victims to, to prepare for the prey, seriously. And so, um, when I turned 15 years old, they asked for girls to go to New York City. My mom was like, no, you cannot go to New York City. But at that time, I was modeling. I, you know, it was a little Barbizon modeling agency in our area that I absolutely wanted to go to New York, not just for the experience with my friends, but I wanted to see what modeling was like on that level. And, you know, of course, the trafficker, they know the talk. They knew exactly what to tell us to do. They knew exactly how to get our parents to say yes. And they did it. And, and it ended up being sex trafficking. So, wow. Thank you so much for that. So you tell us about the experience, slow down a little bit and talk about the experience to New York. Talk about what it was like to, to, to ride to New York, what happened when you got there and how you fell into the situation. You know what? The <laughs> ride to New York to me was the most baffling part of it all. We actually sung church songs all the way to New York City. 
And so, cause they knew we all were like from this old sanctified church. And so the trafficker, we had a contest going to New York city who knew the oldest song. Of course I won the contest. I, you know, I'm raised in this whole holiness church, but we sung church songs all the way. We clapped, we laughed, we prayed, we did all that on the way to New York city. You would have never told me what happened in New York could have even potentially happened. And so when we get to New York city, they take, they let us go to canal street. We have do shopping and all that kind of stuff. That's what most people do when they go to New York. And then they told us to come home, uh, come to the a hotel. And we were going to a Broadway show. Well, when we go into the hotel, all these clothes were hanging around the room and they gave me a blue lace dress with pasties and a thong. Well, I am a church girl. I've never seen nothing like that. I'm a 15 year old virgin. I've never seen nothing like that in my life. And so when I asked his wife, who we later found out was his first victim, I'm sorry. When I looked at her like, you know, what's this lady, his wife, put me in bed when I was sick. She fed me soup. She was very nurturing, very caring. So I'm like looking at her like, what's going on? And she said, just do what he says. And when one of the other girls said, I'm not wearing this stuff, he smacked her. And they slapped her. And that's when I began to know that this is real, that um, this is not a good situation. So I basically was compliant to what they said. Um, she took me with her while um, my other three friends, two of them went one direction and they took one girl, Christian, to a, um, she got in the car with two guys who took her to Connecticut, and I've never seen her from that day to this one. Um, I know that she did, is alive, but what they did to her was um, really, really bad. And so for me, I call what happened, um, they took me to a room. Um, there was a guy that was already there. They had already negotiated rates and things like that. And that particular trafficker's rate was two to three to $500 per hour to have sex with a kid. And so um, they had already negotiated all that and she laid me on the bed and they commenced to committing this act. I call that bed my coffin because that's where my dreams died. That's where I felt like every, all my trust in people, my trust in God even, it died that day. And I never thought that I could come back from it to be quite honest. That weekend, I was sold 27 times as a virgin girl. And so um, it was horrific. And it, that, that part of the story, it lasted from Friday to Monday morning. It was a Labor Day weekend. And when we left New York City, four of us went to New York. Only three of us came back. And so, you know, that put more fear in us. We didn't know if they had killed. We didn't know anything. Mind you, we're 15. One girl was 16 and um, we didn't know anything. So we thought they did it and they were whispering back and forth. They were telling us, if we told what happened, what they would do to our parents. They would kill our mom. You know, it was, they put the fear of God in us. So when we got back to Columbus and this is something a lot of teenagers do when we got back to Columbus and parents and even law enforcement asked us, what did you do? What happened? We said nothing, nothing. They gave us a story to stick with, and we stuck with the, stuck with the story they gave us. Um, fortunately for me, um, well, I would say unfortunately first, because the story didn't end there. 
I live like a thousand feet from my front door to the side door of the school. And so one day, two weeks later, I'm walking to the school and I see his car pull up in the school parking lot. He tells me to get in the car and I try to run and his brother snatches me, throws me in the back of the car. And that's when they had me from, for eight months and they sold me around the country for eight months. They didn't just sell me, there were a lot of kids. There were like, I really don't even know how many boys there were. So I kind of estimate to about 10 to 12 boys, but there were at least 14 to 15 girls that they sold all over the country. Um, I'm gonna jump ahead and then I'll come back to that. We did a bus in Rockford, Illinois, and there was a lady there at the hotel. She told us that we were the first family that came to look for a kid. And they had to have about 40 kids in that hotel from around the country that these traffickers have been trafficking. Nobody is looking for these kids. Mm. So for me, um, I come home, then this happens, and they keep me for eight months. There was a bust. He get, you know, he gets the house gets raided, and I get rescued. I, I was telling someone today how I just hate the word rescue almost because people have the tendency to think you're out now, so you're okay. Right. Oh no, that was clearly not the case. My body was out. Right. My mind wasn't out. My yeah. soul wasn't out. My emotions weren't out. I was pregnant. So there was a whole lot going on. And I lived in the era of what goes on in the house stays in the house. I also live in the era where we didn't go to counselors. Okay. So um, thank you. Thank you for sharing that um, mm-hmm. part of the story with us so far. It's just incredibly heartbreaking. So when Marlene shared this, because honestly, I knew a little bit about what she did. I knew she was an expert in sex trafficking and I knew she did so much with survivor housing, which is something Daniel and I have a heart for. And so I knew she had a lot of uh, wisdom for us and that there was going to be synergies and we brought to the table. But I sat with her at dinner and she told me this story. And when she said that she was rescued at eight months, my heart just leapt. And I said, fantastic, rescued. This is amazing. Life is great, right? This is good. That at least you're out. Mm -mm. But that was kind of where the story began. It was nowhere near the end. Mm -hmm. No. So I said to her, oh, great. So how was it like going back home? That must have been uh, so much better. And what what, what did you tell me, Marlene? No, it wasn't better. My father couldn't look me in my eye. My mother carried shame. She wore it like a garment. Um, I wasn't allowed to really talk about what happened. I, I mean, I left a virgin girl and came back pregnant. And so every girl, at least for me, I cherish the fact that I was a virgin. I'm daddy's little girl. You know what I'm saying? And so that, it tore my family up. This absolutely tore my family up. And, and I want to tell you something. I was in an interview earlier today and they asked me about my children. I have four living children. I've never had an abortion or anything, but I have four children. And I can see my trafficking story in my children. Mm. I see the trauma. I see when I was happy, when I was pregnant. You know, I can see it all played out in the lives of my children. So that was not the end of the story. 
Not at all. And I tell people I wasn't the only victim in this. My family and my children were. So you get home, you try to never live a normal life, you go to school. So what happened? What happened to to Marlene, 15-year-old Marlene, huh. pregnant, trying to go to school, trying to pick up a life after having had an eight-month horrific torturous experience like that what what, what did you do how, how did it well i'll tell you kids are cruel okay <laughs> kids are really cruel so when i went back to school my junior high school um i was called the slut i was called the whore i was pregnant um one of my dearest friends her family was she was no longer to, able to hang with me because of what happened to me and her family did not want her around me so I was isolated, which caused yet another problem. It really did because after so long, what do you think I did? I went back to the trafficker. Yeah. And so for those that are listening that may have children or may know of traffic victims, um, support wraparound services and support are absolutely crucial and key for a victim to stay out of the life because when they feel like and even when i felt like i had no one to talk to christian you know a pimp is always gonna listen to you you may have to buy his attention by being exploited but they always listen there's a lot of trauma wrapped around trafficking a lot so you go back to the trafficker after having been uh taken out of that situation Mm -hmm. at which point you were pregnant Mm -hmm. so did you get a reprieve by being pregnant and mm. you could just sit it out while you were just in the lineup? What, what happened then? No, unfortunately, um, and I thought I would get a reprieve and I thought we would become this couple that, you know, is this figment of my imagination. But the fact of the matter is my rate went up a hundred dollars higher. And so what we, what I found out, what most victims find out is that the customer base of those who buy sex from children like having sex with pregnant girls, specifically pregnant teenagers. And so the rate went up $100. It wasn't a reprieve at all. Wow. Wow, wow, wow. No. So you dropped out of high school at that point. Mm-hmm. Junior high school. Junior high school. Mm-hmm. You're back into the trafficking ring. How mm-hmm. long was it before you started making moves? What did your life look like over the next number of years while you were in that life? Um, It had its highs and lows. Um, So as long as you were compliant to what the trafficker wanted and what he said, you can, well, let me say this. It becomes your normal. It becomes your normal and it became my normal. And so while other people will probably even look at it like it was so devastating, which it was, I'm definitely not minimizing that. But the react, the reality of it is it became my normal. So much so I remember um, after being out of the life, I was on a date and a guy, a, a normal date, a real date. And this guy went to reach for the car door to open my door and I jumped and he looked at me and said, who's beating you? because I wasn't used to someone opening my car door. I was used to getting hit, and that's how my body responded to him just opening the car door. There was so much trauma, Christian, I can't even begin to tell you um, the little things that cause trauma 
in the life smells that cause trauma from a life of a traffic victim smells from clients. You know what I'm saying? It's mm-hmm. all these things that happen to us that we try to get our life back. So in my effort to try to get my life back, and this is something a lot of survivors do. The first thing we say is, let me go get a degree. Let me get some education. Let me get some paper. So somebody will listen to me with some letters behind my name. Well, that that was another myth. (laughs) Not that it doesn't have its uh, influence, um, because it does. But the fact of the matter is, for for me as a victim, it did nothing for me. It did nothing for me. Okay. This is good, because I was actually going to ask you, how did you go from being a junior high dropout to having a doctorate? Can you talk Um, about that process of redemption for you? And that is a process of redemption. And even in the process of redemption, I learned a lot. Um, like when I went to school, and I probably shared this with you, I remember um, being in one of my classes, and um, this is when I was getting my associate degree. And I remember them taking a survey. It was a Christian college. And I remember them taking a survey of pastors who watch porn. Now, they, the professors didn't know all of our background in that room. They had no idea that I had been a victim of pornography. So I'm sitting in class being triggered, you know, and then thinking about the pastors that are watching porn, I became so angry. I mean, this whole thing was really, really a process because when people don't know your history and think that you're just normal as they are, Again, they don't know what triggers you. So um, that was a process of redemption for me, though. So I went from um, Ohio Christian University. I ended up getting a degree in theology. And, and it was phenomenal for me to accomplish. I accomplished a lot. I mean, as far as education and certifications, because I thought that's what I needed to do to be affirmed, to be approved by society. So I went and got all this extra stuff. It, it it was a lot of money for nothing. <laughs> wow. It was, yeah, it, 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 yeah, yeah. You know, so I know what the audience may be thinking is kind of, how is this related to, to kingdom business or, or Christian oh. business? And we're going to pivot a little bit now because I'm, I'm going to start with your redemption and process as it relates to money. And yeah in trade in exchange because when you are sold into human trafficking at a a, and sex trafficking at a very young age you have a very different sense of worth um, yeah very different handling of money about thoughts about money and you can't try to engage in kingdom business or uh, kingdom enterprise without dealing with those things exchange trade money worth what was Can I tell you that was my hardest? That's been probably the hardest part of my process. What I even think the enemy knew about me that I didn't know, that um, wealth was assigned a, a to my life. You know what I'm saying? Um, and so I didn't know at 15 years old the plan of God for my life at all. One of the other things I tell parents, when you have children, get a revelation of your child. And so most parents today in in my time, they want your child to go from high school to college to marriage to the house with the white picket fence. But if you have a child with a destiny of God on their life that that God has a plan and purpose for and you don't have a revelation of that child, 
That's where I believe the greatest part the enemy came in at mm -hmm. because they didn't have a revelation of who their daughter was. Mm -hmm. And so I tell parents today, get a revelation of your child and facilitate that destiny based on that revelation. So for me, um, when I came out of the life, well, one of the things that used to happen to me when I was in the life was I would get beat on my hands. So I would get beat on my hands if I didn't make quota. We had a $2,500 a day quota. And sometimes if it was um, an event-based quota, let's say if it was a golf outing or uh, some kind of classic memorial tournaments, um, the quota could be $5,000 a day because you can make that very easily. But if you didn't make quota, I would get beat on my hands. And so I had a real problem with taking money. Even in the life, I would have people put the money on the table and I would pick it up because I didn't want them to hand money to me in my hand. It was, it was so much trauma around money and I couldn't understand it. This really, uh, I have dealt with most of my life. Literally, I absolutely hated money not understanding well knowing money answer all things so there you cannot just hate money but it was all the plan of the enemy and so once i came out of the life um i remember one of my friends said i want you to start selling shouldn't be in this network marketing business and um and i used to think you want me to go from selling sex to selling cosmetics. I don't see the correlation here at all. <laughs> Not at all. <laughs> but I did it. I did it. And she taught me sales. She taught me the ethics and, and integrity of selling and not just me. But I still had a problem with understanding when people buy from you, they might like your product, but for real, they're attaching to you. They are attaching to you. And so I had a problem with being the product. Mm. Okay, you get it? And so, right. And so the enemy has already marred my perception of what the product presents because of the sex trafficking. And now I'm actually having branding agents and um, PR people tell me, Marlene, you're the product. And I'm like, no, I was already a product. Y'all don't understand. Stop saying I'm the product. And so I have struggled with that for many, many, many years. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. That is so deep. A lot of uh, light bulbs go off for me because um, I hope people listening are just kind of having, a, 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 you know, a, a reflective moment because let's just take this purely from a business perspective. That, that is a true nugget that, it doesn't just matter what your product is. It matters the problem you're solving for people. Mm -hmm. People have to buy into you. Mm -hmm. They have to buy into the entrepreneur. They have to buy into mm -hmm. the entrepreneur's story. And it's so funny you say that because I myself am, I'm more of a behind the scenes, just do it kind of person. Okay. I'm not really the person who wants to be out um, front which is why okay. doing this podcast and doing things like this is like mm -hmm. pushing me, you know, just kind of forcing sure. to, to sure. do that because I'd rather be behind the scenes. And I think that it's a profound piece of wisdom in selling that yeah. um, part, you is the, you're the story, who the message oh, yeah. is, oh, yeah. the massive part of success. And so what people mm -hmm. who are successful in sales are able to do is quite frankly, be vulnerable. And oh my gosh! Out there, 
and, and say, this is what I have to offer the world and not be afraid to do it. And I think that that's a lot of wisdom for somebody who's listening and thinking, why is this stuff not moving? It's because you're not in it. And I think that's really profound, Marlene. So, you know, the, what I found that um, really becoming vulnerable, now you're talking to a sex traffic victim. So becoming vulnerable again to really connect to people is key with sales, in my opinion. Yeah. And so to do that, you have to really get out of yourself. You have to really, especially when you know you have a mandate to do things like this uh, and be a kingdom entrepreneur. You have to know and understand this is really not about you. Mm-hmm. It's not about you, although it's you that have to, you're the vehicle. You're the vehicle. And that can be hard to be vulnerable like that uh, and susceptible to the criticisms of people. Mm-hmm. Um, at this, you know, not coming over all salesy and trying to just sell a pro- product to make a dollar. No, it can never be that way to keep them, ever. Wow, that is so good. That is so good. Um, so you've overcome a lot. You've, you've overcome a lot in, in all this time. It is amazing to me because really I stand in awe of God. I often, I, I'm in awe of God. I don't even know how he does, how he does it, but he does it very well. <laughs> but so as far as my entrepreneur experience, um, when I came out to life, uh, I wanted to give people a job. I wanted to hire people. I wanted to uh, make sure that people were sustainable so they would never have to go back into that life again. Because I, I've cycled through a couple of times when I couldn't feed my children. Let me tell you this story. I remember um, getting leaving him, leaving the trafficker, and with four kids now, with four children. And um, I remember saying, I will never sell another part of my body again, no matter what. That even meant if I couldn't feed my children. I was not going to sell another part of my body. And I would tell my children, just set the table and God was going to provide. And sometimes he did and sometimes he didn't. And so I had to go through the process of saying, babies, let's just cuddle and, and, and let's go to sleep, you know, mm-hmm. or let's, oh, Christian, it was a process. It really was a process. So that's what makes me so uh, passionate about two things now education and entrepreneurship. I think that these are the two things that will absolutely break cycles of um, exploitation on any level, not just sex trafficking on any level. It will help women come out of domestic violence. It will help. It will just help people period education and exploit exploit um, entrepreneurship for sure. That was my out besides Jesus Christ. That was the main out of course, (laughs) Uh, except in Christ. Yeah. Except in Christ was my main out, but, the path of entrepreneurship has absolutely proven um, to be a great passion of mine. Okay. So this is a perfect time to segue to the, um, to some of this entrepreneurial stuff. Yeah. One thing I love about Marlene is um, I have, so this series, the Christian uh, business podcast is supposed to highlight entrepreneurs or subject matters from as many a variety of uh, kingdom business as possible or mm-hmm. kingdom operatives operating in the business world as possible. And so you'll see, you know, first we had Daniel talk about kingdom economics. We're going to have people come in that work in, you know, software. We have lawyers, people who do prophetic uh, uh, ministry to businesses. 
What I love about Marlene is your story is really around social entrepreneurship. Yes. And it's such an incredible partnering of your ministry, Mm -hmm. which is, Mm -hmm. I consider Marlene a freedom fighter. Yes. Marlene and Lisa are modern day freedom fighters. Mm-hmm. I treasure them. It's part of the reason why I love them so much. <laughs> what, what Daniel does and what I help to do in behind the scenes in the, in the spiritual, Marlene and Lisa are doing in the natural. Yes. Are, we're breaking stuff free on the other side of the veil. They're literally going into the prison oh, yes. advocating oh, yes. for these women to be set free. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. so, um, what I love so much about it is that perfect marrying. And I just, I love this story because there's some people who may not find that they are supposed to change the economic system or start a business to sell a product, but they have mm-hmm. a heart like yours, which is mm-hmm. to help a certain segment of, of the population gets a level of empowerment and freedom. Yes. Mm-hmm. And, mm-hmm. and you have a model for how to do that yes. how to do it without mm-hmm. government assistance. Well, how, to, mm-hmm. how to do it without uh, co-opting, how to yes. do it God's way. And so I would love for you to kind of just go to how you went from that experience to actually starting uh, the Rahab House and, and mm-hmm. your first initiative where you, the, the, what that did to the community, Yeah, how you actually, the nuts and bolts, because there are people on here that have a different mandate, but it's, you're going to be able to give them some wisdom. So how you actually did that. Mm-hmm what money you used to do it. How did you finance that vision? Just give us, give us the goods, Marlene. I gave you the goods, Christian. So, <laughs> so let me say this, let me say this first. So sometimes when I, you know, people say certain things that sound kind of cliche-ish, but the reality of it is I listen to God every step of the way. I'm telling you, I listen to him every single step. of the, There's no way possible that I could have done these things on my own. And so what happened was in 2007, I went on a ministry trip with my pastors. We got from Columbus to Florida. In Florida, I was walking out of the airport and fell on a curb that's about this big and broke my ankle. I mean, that, it didn't even make sense. How do you slip off this little curb and break your ankle? So um, I ended up having to be flown back to Columbus, Ohio, had to have surgery on my ankle, um, broken in three plate. It was just ridiculous. Well, this is when the Lord began to call me. And, and even then I didn't understand it. I'm in a nursing home and people started calling me saying, Hey Marlene, this guy has my daughter in the bar and won't let her out. And from the nursing home bed, I am facilitating groups of guys to go, go get this girl, you know? And so not knowing that I didn't even, it didn't even put two and two together. And so, but when I would talk to the girls, they were like, I don't want to go home. My mother's boyfriend is bothering me at night. My mother's boyfriend's having sex with me. So I'm like, they don't have anywhere to go. So what are we going to do? I had already come to a horrible divorce. I had gone through a lot of financial changes. I had $4,000 to my entire name. And I said, okay, God, what are we going to do? And he told me, I want you to go rent this place. He told me to call this church, ask them, do they have any home owner, compassion homeowners? Because I have a job. I'm working for the pastor. I'm not getting paid for real. And so I called the church. I found a compassionate landlord who didn't take me through a lot of credit checks and things like that. The house was 2000 for the deposit and 2000 for the rent. I only have $4,000. So now I'm done. And I said, Lord, I'm done. The rest is up to you. He told me who to call, which was the realtor, uh, realtor, realtor staging association. I called them Christian. And I remember saying, 
um, do you stage homes for nonprofits? I didn't even have a nonprofit. Uh, I'm like, somebody's going to let me use theirs, but I don't know who it's going to be right now. And so um, they said, yes, we do two a year and we've already gotten our two. We're going to do Ronald McDonald House in a couple of months. And so, no, matter of fact, they were going to do it in two months. This was in July. They were doing it at the end of August, okay? So it was kind of like a month and a half really, when, I, when I talked to them. And so anyhow, um, I said, no, I was so sick. I was like, God, you told me to call these people in, and they can't do it. So I called my team of intercessors. And I'm like, y'all have to pray because God said it. We need them to change their mind. One week to the day later, the lady calls me back and she said, do you still need your house stage? Yes, ma'am. But what happened to the Ronald McDonald house? She said, well, they're moving from one side of the street to the other side. And we have to do this in this fiscal year. And so I'm like, wow. Well, I still had to get up someone's nonprofit status, which we were able to do that in, in record time. And so they came over. They came over on this Saturday. And they did like a home makeover. So I, I opened the door, take them on the full tour of the house. It's a six bedroom, four bath house. And then um, they say, don't come back until Sunday morning. Christian, when I walked in that door Sunday morning, I, I almost passed out. <laughs> I mean, I was like, oh my God. They laid this house out and put so much love in every single room of this house. So much detail in every single room of this house. So much so when the girls would come, I mean, it just felt like a little palace for girls. And so it was a place of healing. Well, one of the guys that was painting, the, one of the stagers, he asked the leader, he said, what is this house going to be? And they said, a home for traffic victims. He goes and tells his pastor, who in turn calls me for coffee and ends up being our partner. And it was actually the president of the Methodist church. And so, right. And so they came alongside, they've been partners since 2008. We're still very much as 2020 and we're still very much in relationship. And so that started a, just a plethora of people coming alongside and we were the first survivor led housing organization in our city. And so it just absolutely changed the mindset of the community community to know survivors do heal and they can come back and become productive members of society. And so I want to tell you one more story. One of our um, first clients, she was a victim of trafficking from the age of 13 to around 18, almost 19 years old. And um, a law enforcement officer called me one morning about five o'clock and he said, um, we have this girl, we know she's a victim. And um, if she doesn't act so terrible that we could um, allow her to go to your program. Otherwise, we're going to have to arrest her. If you can get here in time, we'll let her go with you. I was like 40 minutes away. And I'm, I am breaking laws trying to get to this girl. And so by the time I got there, she was gone. And um, 4 o'clock that same afternoon, I get a call from a social worker that says, hey, we just took in the traffic victim and we want to know if you can come down and see her. Well, it was the same girl that the police officer had called me about that day. And so she ended up coming to our program. The, the first day she was in our program, though, Christian, she um, went to the bathroom to shower and everything. And at that time, I didn't know to turn the locks around on the door. You never let a traffic victim or let, never let a client lock themselves in the bathroom. And so She's in the bathroom, she's locked the door, and she's screaming to the top of her lungs. So she's a cutter. 
We didn't know if she was in there cutting herself. We didn't know. It took me about 17 minutes to get her to unlock the door. So I'm preparing myself to see all this blood, you know? And when I get in there, there's no blood. And so I'm like, what is wrong? What, you know, why are you screaming like this? And she is just screaming and crying. And she's like, I'm so dumb. I'm so dumb. My sweetheart, why are you saying that? She says, because I don't know how to turn a shower on. He never let her turn on a shower by herself. He was in total control of everything that this young girl did, everything. And see, this is what traffickers do. They take away your power. Your, your, they take away everything from you in, in just the least little minute way. Her not being able to turn that shower on almost caused her to relapse, literally. Can I tell you, though, 14 months later, that young lady ended up graduating valedictorian from her high school and gave me the police officer an award who actually arrested her. So, yes, those, that, that story is actually a very public story. You can Google it by Googling uh, Rosita Curry human trafficking. Um, it was a very public story, very national story. Wow, that's incredible. Yeah. So I actually want to pick up a little bit on what you're saying um, about how, so you got the house and then mm-hmm. I want to pick up on some, um, something next, but I just kind of want to recap because again, we're trying to distill uh, principles that people yeah. who are called to social entrepreneurship and called to this mix of ministry and, and, and business, just some principles. What I yes. heard you say was God gave you a mandate and a vision and you didn't have everything you needed. Oh, no. Oh, but no. if you just set with your $4,000 and said, I, God's calling me to start a house. I have faith for uh, Rahab Housing. I have faith for this uh, housing for survivor, underage survivors, my minor children who are coming out of sex. I have faith. And you went around for years and years and years and years talking about your faith then I would suggest that you have belief, not faith. Come on. That's right. Absolutely. I was totally faith great. is doing. Action. I just, I just mentioned this in my class, Akina business class on Sunday. Faith is action. So mm-hmm. if you're not moving and you're not doing, you're in belief, you're not in faith. Mm-hmm. The second thing is that this was God's vision. And because mm-hmm. it was God's vision, he provided the provision. So you mm-hmm. provided what you could. Mm-hmm. And then... God came alongside you and mm-hmm. provided the rest. And you had told me that, that um, the Methodist church provided the, the rent, everything you oh needed. Oh my God, the toilet paper, the toilet everything. paper, everything. Yes. everything. So for those of you who are struggling with a vision and you're like, I, I know I got this vision from God. Why is nothing happening? Oftentimes God is waiting on you. He's not yes. going to give you a preceding step yes. until you've actually mm-hmm. stepped out on faith. So I hope that inspires you. So my next question, I want to kind of just take a hard pivot to talk about, there's so many ways this can go, but um, I really want to talk about how social enterprise came about. How did you mm-hmm. get started uh, restaurants? Uh, and this, this is a this great is, story. It is yeah, a great story. Yeah, this is a story. great story. I absolutely love this story. So okay. um, I was having a breakfast for pastor's wives and they were coming over to the house. They wanted to tour the house. They wanted to meet the girls. They wanted to hear the stories. And so one of the girls asked me if she can cook. And this girl had never cooked before. I didn't even know she could cook. And I'm like, oh, God. But, you know, it's all about empowerment. So I said, we just go let her cook and pray over the food and pray nobody dies from her cook, you know, eating this food. <laughs> and when I tell you I left that house, I went home and came back that morning. They had created the most beautiful 
presentation. The food was, I mean, amazing. And so the pastor's wife starts saying, um, who's your caterer? Who catered this for you? Right. This is how good they were. Who's your caterer? When they left, I remember taking the girl, the main girl, um, I took her to a restaurant. Uh, this this is part the story kind of gets crazy. I took her to a restaurant and I said, look inside that restaurant. Can you see yourself running this restaurant? Can you see your customers? Just dream with me. And she did. She looked up at the address, Christian, and she bust out crying. I'm like, what's wrong? She said, that's the address of the first house I was raped in. Mm. Again, triggers. We don't know. You know what I'm saying? We don't know. But what we did was we said, okay, well, let's face it. Let's con we're here now. Let's conquer this. So this address will never again be a trigger for you. So we walked through a process. And I can tell you now she can probably walk in the house with that address and don't think twice about it. And so um, this is another part of the story that gets crazy. The vineyard churches had called me and said, we have a lot of brand new furniture that we want to donate, office furniture. Do you need it? Now, in my head, I was saying no, but out of my mouth came yes. Christian, mm -hmm. I didn't have an office. Where's it going? I, I, I don't have, and I'm talking about seven office full of cherry wood furniture. I mean, beautiful, beautiful stuff. They had these cubicles, and they were moving into a different um, building where there was no more cubicles, so they couldn't use this furniture at all. So I said, yes, I'll take the furniture. And my brother called me at the same day. My brother calls me and says, hey, sis, I just found an office for you to rent. Do you want to come and see it? And I'm like, okay, well, furniture, office, yes. Well, the place that we actually saw had a restaurant on one side and an office on the other. And so I wasn't that impressed with the office space, but I was really intrigued by the restaurant, right? This I just love God, how he does things. So, Lisa, I don't know if you know this, so check it out. And so um, I tell the guy, he's like, "This the restaurant's already rented, and you can only rent this side. I said, no, if I can't have both, I don't want either. And here's the cash right now. And so I give this guy the cash. We do a lease. Can I tell you, my former trafficker was the one trying to rent the restaurant. What? <laughs> my former trafficker was the one trying to rent the restaurant. Yes. And so he actually comes in after we have obtained the restaurant and the, the office space. <laughs> yeah, it was absolutely crazy. And so she, this girl who had fixed the, the breakfast for the pastor's wife was the, uh, the uh, restaurant manager. And, um, and so we would get victims that came out of prison into our program. And so one girl came, she came for an interview. She was real haughty and she was like, I'm telling you now, I'm not going to do A, B, C, D. I'm not going to clean the bathroom. I'm not just, and I just kept saying, okay, all right, you, okay, that's what you say. And so um, she, I trained her, and I would walk around the restaurant, and I'm cooking, and I'm like, thank you, Jesus. Every time, I, every time I'm out, I'm saying, thank you, Jesus. She said, you are so crazy. Why are you around here running around saying, thank you, Jesus, all the time? I said, oh, you'll understand after a while. A year later, she's running the restaurant saying, thank you, Jesus, because she now <laughs> understands that, you know, if it was not for the Lord, we could not be here at all. And um, many, many things happened there in that restaurant. Such redemption happened in that restaurant. We actually took the office space, converted into a church that seated about 75 people. And on Sundays, we would feed everybody for free. 
um, on during the week, any prostituted or homeless person could eat for free. And what we did to actually sustain that, we started a program called Angel Plate. So Angel Plate was a program where anybody could buy, you can go online, buy a $10 gift certificate, you can send it to the restaurant, and just when a person would come in, they would, um, it would pay for their food. And so we would have people come, we would have kids come into the restaurant. One of the schools in that area had a 13% graduation rate. One of the things I understood is these kids are living in severe poverty. And if they can't eat, they can't study. If they can't eat, they can't even hear a teacher. You know what I'm saying? And so what we did was we allowed the kids to come to the restaurant, eat for free. We had tutors in the office space. So they had to bring their homework. They had to sit with the tutor. They would get a meal. And as long as they brought their homework back signed by their teacher, because the kids would do homework and not turn it in, but as long as they would bring it back signed, then they can get their next bill. And that became another social enterprise. Wow. Mm -hmm. This is so impressive. So to tell me, what mistakes did you make along the way as you were executing this? You were talking about, <laughs> you know, just, I know, we'll keep it till just a few. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. Like, well, how, many, how many do you want there, right? Oh, my God. <laughs> And, and how did you go from that to becoming one of the foremost experts uh -huh. on my, uh, minor sex, sex trafficking in the country and developing statewide programs that, yeah. um, that are recognized all over the country and the world for transitioning Ooh, out of sex trafficking? What mistakes? One of the things that um, I have a lot of passion but I didn't know if what I was doing was legal all the time. Okay. And so one, I'm serious. I just didn't know. Like one, one of my friends, he opened up the first homeless shelter here in Ohio. He went and rented this big old building, put some people in it. Um, but he didn't have occupancy permits and he didn't. So they arrested him. They literally arrested him. And so one of the things that I, my first class that I teach entrepreneurs is keep it legal. Just keep it legal. But you don't know what you don't know, but ignorance is no excuse. And so, you know, find out and keep it legal. So when I opened that home for traffic victims in the state of Ohio, you're only allowed to have four non-related um, occupants in the house, okay, that you're, that you're having a program. Well, I had about seven. So, you know, that was one of the things. Even when I opened up the restaurant, the day before I opened the restaurant, I met who I now call my restaurant dad. He owns about 45 restaurants here in Columbus, Ohio. He came in that restaurant the day before and he said, there's no way you're opening this restaurant tomorrow. You didn't do this and you didn't do this. And we had our license and all that stuff, but there was so much I didn't even know what to do. Mm -hmm. So, you know, of course he came in and yes, we still opened up the restaurant just on time when we said because of God sending the help that we needed. So the other thing I would say is get the help you need. Don't be so prideful that you don't get the help that you need. Then the other thing I would definitely say is I had no boundaries. I had no boundaries, none. I mean, so if a victim gave me a sob story, oh girl, I was giving them money. They was probably buying crack. Was it? I don't know. I was doing all this stuff just to satisfy them, to keep them in a certain place. I had no boundaries whatsoever. And that's what actually led to my burnout. Mm 
Wow. Mm-hmm. So, I made a lot of mistakes. Yeah. So that that's good. Can you talk a little bit about just looking back on your experience? And then I want you to talk a little bit about your, your project coming up that you're, that, mm-hmm. you know, we're working on the future and where the switch, I want, I want you to talk a little bit about the switch as well, but okay. what has God taught you about engaging in kingdom business? If there were like, if you had to boil it down to three major things that you want to leave our audience with, what are those three major keys or principles about engaging in kingdom business though in, in partnership with Jesus? What, what would that be? Well, he has to be your CEO. That's number one. You cannot engage in kingdom business and not, not access to the king. <laughs> it just doesn't happen that way because you get a lot of flesh. You'll have a lot of good ideals. I'm an ideal person, as you know. I come up with more ideals, you know. <laughs> but all those ideals might not be God ideals, nor may it be the timing to execute those ideals. So that's the first thing I would say. Stay attached to the king. The second thing is understand, you know, when we talk about the wealth of the wicked being laid up for the just, um, I think it's a difference in being co-opted now that I've really learned about co-opting um, than use, utilizing the wealth of the wicked. I, I definitely think there's a big difference there. So you have to have the discernment to know which one is which. And, and it was just the grace of God because I'm just really learning about co-opting and so it was just the grace of God that I had a spirit that said no, mm. you know, and because of exploitation, I didn't want to be exploited again in any kind of way. For those of you who don't know, we've been throwing around this term social enterprise. Mm-hmm. Marlene, can you explain what social enterprise is and why it is so important to make sure that it is sustainable? Absolutely. So so one of the things I want to say is that a lot of people have this mindset that when God gives them a ministry, they'll get, they'll get a 501c3 and all this grant money is going to come for their nonprofit and the government is going to fund their ministry. Can I tell you two things? One, that's a myth. And two, you probably don't want the government to fund your ministry. Actually, never. And so... Um, the beauty about social enterprise is when you take your passion and your purpose and you couple it with a business plan um, of a for-profit business to, that will equal into profits. And you take those profits and you fund your own organization or your ministry. So it's like, you, you're familiar with Jenny's ice cream? Mm-hmm. So Jenny's ice cream, I think it's a, it is a national brand. And Jenny is actually right here in Columbus, Ohio. Jenny is not only a social enterprise, but she's also a B Corp, um, which, you know, you're so, you know, the B Corp is. No, please and explain. So, please explain. Okay. So a B Corp is when you have, you've gone through the process of you're not using slave labor. You're, so it's beyond fair trade. You are um, totally given a fair wage. You're taking a business model and, so, and, and coupling it with a social concern. And so there's, there's a lot of companies now that are taking, like we have one here called Hot Chicken Takeover. Hot Chicken Takeover only hires inmate, former inmates, incarcerated persons, and they're doing absolutely amazing. And so um, that's what a social enterprise is, is taking your passion, connecting it to a for-profit business, for the sake of profit and taking those profits and, and um, sustaining your nonprofit. That's awesome. 
So it's essentially, you have an idea to help, to empower, to release, to bring freedom, to bring treatment, Mm -hmm. but you're doing it in a way that's not requiring government assistance necessarily or fully relying on government assistance. Not fully, not fully. Or it's not fully relying on donor assistance. Correct. Right? Correct. Right. It's something that you're actually creating value in one context and using mm-hmm. that value you create in one context for the benefit of uh, uh, another social mission. And that's totally. what you have done beautifully in so many different ways that you are thinking outside of the box to bring services to a very underserved community. So thank yeah. you for that. That's really awesome. And I hope that when some people hear that, they're connecting the dots about how God wants to help them or how God is leading them to actually execute the ideas he's given them. Because sometimes people yeah. have great ideas like you, but they don't even know that, oh, what I'm really trying to do is a social enterprise. Yes, correct. They That's just correct. know they have this and they don't even maybe know have the other piece. And so what we're- That's correct. The loop is, looks, social enterprise is a real thing. You may not be selling- mm-hmm. um, cameras or technology or consulting or um, lawyer services, but you may be helping service folks and you have to tie in an enterprise to make sure that that is something that is sustainable no matter what. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I do want you to share one story. Marlene and I can talk all um, day and that is is not a theoretical. um, (laughs) That's real, honey. (laughs) We've done it. Yes. We love it, actually. Yeah, we love it. We've done it. We've proven you could talk for four days straight. (laughs) Yes, and eat popcorn while we're doing it. Eat popcorn, eat good food. You tell the people I'm actually a pretty good cook. Oh, no, she's amazing. You're going to get people wanting to come to your house. I'm just going to tell you. You're going to get people wanting to come to your house. She's an amazing cook. She's a wonderful host. Her and Dan have the gift of hospitality. So, look. This is not an open invitation, but she's amazing. She really is. She really is. So, um, but, I, but I wanted to, you to talk about the time in which you had, your business was under direct assassination Ooh. because we've gone through it at Bride Ministries, went down to nothing and God has redeemed, took us through that season and now can't touch this, right? Yeah. Tell us about your moment where they tried to take everything you had. And there was one thing you said that I thought was so wonderful about the lengths you would go through to, to protect the vision and the people that God entrusted you with. So just, and that was exactly it, Christian. It was the people that God entrusted me with. I didn't see those people as a number, as a funding source. These were people. And so when we became under attack, um, I had been doing work in the area of sex trafficking and housing uh, for quite some time. And there was an organization that came alongside and they were kind of new in this area, at least in Columbus. And they said, we want you to show us who the real traffickers are. Um, where, where's the area of exploitation? Uh, we have something or there's something in the, in the life called a trap house. And look at the terms that these places are called a trap house. To me, the enemy is telling you exactly what he's trying to do. He's not even disclosing, you know, hiding it. He calls it the trap house. And then the trap house is where there may be no electric, no gas, no running water, 
but prostitution and a lot of drug dealing happens in the trap house. And so they wanted me to show them all these dynamics of sex trafficking. And so for eight months, and it was with the understanding that um, they would apply for a grant. They were a well-seasoned organization. Here I am just starting with barely a nonprofit status, and they were a well-seasoned organization. And um, so I did it. I took them alongside. I showed them where the real prostitution was ha taking place. I took them and showed them who the real pimps were in our city. And um, the end of the eight months, I get a one-line letter stating that I was no longer welcome. And that was it. And then I get a, um, a letter from the attorney general's office stating that um, someone had filed a complaint on our organization stating that I was taking donor money and playing bingo. Now, honestly, I had never been in the bingo hall in my life unless I went with my mother or something when I was a kid. But bingo? Yeah, <laughs> no. I'm not your bingo kind of chick. You know what I'm saying? I'm just not. And so, but I was devastated. I was devastated, maybe a little mad, because I'm like, God, I'm just trying to do what you told me to do. I'm not, you know, I'm not trying to get rich off of nobody. I'm just literally trying to do what you told me to do. And I wasn't ready for the fight at that time. And so uh, two things happened. One, whenever you have a complaint at the attorney general's office, you're not able to fundraise. So you can't take any donations. And so I promised those girls before I would have, because it made them unstable now. You know what I'm saying? They don't know if they're not a place to live or they don't know if they're going to have programming. They don't know if they're going to see their doctors anymore. They're totally unstable. And I promised them before I put you out this house, I'll go to the streets. I will never do it. And so what I did was I took my money out of our 401k, my 401k. And what the system didn't expect the prostitute to have was a 401k. Wow. And so, but I did. So I took the money out and that sustained us for about nine months, a little, just a little under eight months, a little over eight months. And so we, I have a board, of course, and my, the president of our board is a professor at Ohio State University. And so she called the attorney general's office, the investigator, and said, what's going on? If you're going to charge her with something, go ahead and charge her. But this has to stop. And literally he said, I don't understand what all the hype is around this case. It's only a complaint. We're not saying she's, she's done anything. It's a complaint that needs to be investigated. So uh, he told her that 53 churches had called and said, is there open a complaint against Marlene Carson and Rahab's hideaway? And he would say yes. After so many uh, calls, though, he was like, how do you all even know this? Well, what we found out was that this organization was literally calling the churches. See, they had been a speaker at my very first event, this organization that filed the complaint. And they knew who my donors were. They called every church and told them personally, all, with the exception of one, and told them that Marlene has an open complaint. And so that's the, the brook dried up. And I'm going to tell you for those that have a call of God and the vision of God and that you know that you've been mandated to do what God has said for you to do in the realm of marketplace ministry or social enterprise. Trust me, the brook will dry up. But God is a sustainer. And God was able to sustain us during that time. But I became very broken. I became, I mean, I just couldn't believe it. I'm trying to do my best at helping people. And here I am under this level of attack. Well, what happened, um, I was at work one day 
um, I actually worked for a national company at the time in their marketing department. And I had been emailing this particular organization saying, what did I do? Can we fix it? Can we at least talk about it? I did that for three months straight. At the end of the third month, well, the beginning of the fourth month, I emailed the assistant to the director and I copied the director. Well, the assistant hit reply and I got the email. Christian, I will never forget that day as long as I live. I, get, I opened my email and it says, I don't want to lie on Marlene anymore. I don't want to be a part of this plan anymore. I mean, I am like, oh my God. And the first thing that came to me was when a thief gets caught, he got to pay back sevenfold at all his house. Mm -hmm. I took that email and I said, this is what I needed. Because she really told the story of the whole scheme. It was all a plot. It was all a plot and a plan of the enemy to tear Rahab's hideaway down, to tear our name down, to tear my character down and integrity down and to get rid of us. And it was one of the things they wanted to be the head ones in charge. They did not want a survival led program in this area at all. Well, we ended up having uh, some mitigation meetings and it was just downright wicked. Some of the things that came out in that conversation were absolutely wicked. So I would tell nonprofits now, when you uh, begin that level of attack, don't digress. Get in the face of God to see what's really going on. I, was, I took it so personal, Christian, that I didn't do that right away because I was so hurt and I was so devastated. Like, God, why didn't you do this? And, you know, why didn't that happen? Don't take it personal. Get in the face of God and seek God for, for the direction that you're to go to. Because after that, um, we, we came back and we start doing things. However, it was never on the level mm. that I thought it should be. Because I had, now I felt like I had a target on my back. Mm -hmm. And then the enemy put enough fear in me. Hey, we went through a complete audit. I had to turn in every check. I had to turn in every bank account. We went through a complete um, a, ex, a, external audit that was not pleasant. And so, praise God, I had all that stuff. And at the end of the, the eight months, I get a letter from the um, attorney general's office saying, all complaints have been unsubstantiated. Go back to business as usual. I wanted to choke that. Yeah, how, how do you do that? How do you go back to business as usual? Are you kidding right. me? Right. Because it, it, it was, I could not go back to business as usual. But that motivated me even the more to not want to get government funding and, and really work in the area of social enterprise. Mm, that's beautiful. Yeah. That is beautiful. Yeah, yeah you yeah. know, um, one of the things that I found just in the course of doing business and entrepreneurship and and obviously helping Dan out with Bride Ministries is that, and this, you gotta have, you gotta come with a tremendous amount of fortitude. Oh, yes. Of intestinal fortitude. Because oh, yes. you are not, when you wake up every day and you go to work, you're dealing with the issues that the job presents. Yes. When you wake up and you go to work for business, you are literally facing issues that you may not have created. Huh. That seems unjust for you to have to deal with. Very true. You are not Very necessarily true. running your own agenda and your own vision. And, and your day is just all the things that you want to get done that day. You uh -uh. have to contend with the external bearing that. Oh, yes. And oh, yes. Extremely pressurized, painful, emotionally draining ways. Uh -huh. And so, mm -hmm. I have told young people that 
the two things that I think are the most important to success, it's not intelligence. I find people who think that they're smart and that's it to be probably wildly unuseful. Wow. Wow. Is like, so not enough. Mm-hmm. Are you, um, resilient? Yes, absolutely. Mm-hmm. Do you Are have you, a fortitude? Do, will you keep going? Are you resilient? Mm-hmm. Resilience will take you places mm-hmm. that mm-hmm. being smart mm-hmm. and knowing things will never take you. Mm-hmm. That's true. So you see, when you're looking at me, having mm-hmm. come, where I come from, going to Stanford, and everybody told me it could not be done and just to uh-huh. settle is resilience. It's resilience. It's resilience. And the uh-huh. second thing uh-huh. is, are you intellectually curious? Uh-huh. Are you uh-huh. satisfied with what you know? Or do uh-huh. you want to keep learning something else? Uh-huh. Are you asking the questions uh-huh. of why? Because uh-huh. the more you ask questions, the more answers you're going to get, the closer you're going to get to the right answer and to the right Yes. Answer. Resilience yes. and intellectual curiosity are so much more important than almost. Yes. Than, mm-hmm. And obviously that's hand in hand with Jesus, but mm-hmm. you know, we, we, we got to come with something. And those are right. materials that when you don't have, I kind of am wondering whether or not that person is really ready to build. Mm. Let me tell you something. If you don't have thick skin and resiliency, you're probably not ready to build. No. You're probably not ready. Now, one of the things that I do now, and as you know, one of the upcoming projects that we're going to work on is this 32-bed facility. And I really want to work, I want to serve serve thrivers that are ready for entrepreneurship. And so I was thinking today what an, uh, uh, an onboarding application would look like. And one of the things that, one of the questions I have that just keeps coming to mind is, do you have a capacity? Mm-hmm. We all have a big dream. You know what I'm saying? But what do you have the capacity to do today? Mm. And so if, if you don't have the capacity to really get in and be resilient and fight for what you believe that God has given you to do, you're not ready. You're not ready. Um, so with that, I want you to just tell uh, the audience a little bit about what you're working on. There are so many great things. You just give us a little bit about the switch. You had the B program. This, you know, these facilities that we're opening up that, you know, we're hoping we'll see how we can be helpful to you as well, because there's so much crossover in what you do and what we do. I think we're going to be locking arms and being, you know, very close in the future. But can you just talk about some of the things you're doing now? I'd love for people to hear about the switch and B and some of these other projects. Sure. Sure. So the Switch Anti-Trafficking Network is a national network whereby we uh, bring education and awareness and create policy for um, the political figures for sex trafficking. We do a lot with like child advocacy centers with government, creating the policies and protocols on how to facilitate the lives of these children and adults who have been sex trafficked. Um, uh, one of the things that we're working on is a 32-bed facility that will house victims of sex trafficking or kids aging out of foster care, a couple of different populations in there. Um, and again, it will have an entrepreneurial component where I think that when you put people in a safe, loving, non-judgmental environment and let them just dream. And I was thinking today, we may not have a, like where well, Rahab's hideaway, they have to be in bed at a certain time. They have to be in the house at a certain time. Well, with, with this project, I just think that so some of us are very eclectic and creative. 
You can't be on the schedule like that. Of course, there needs to be boundaries and things in place, but they need a place where they can really just thrive, just dream, and really implement their dreams. So that 32-bed facility is on 18 acres of land, and I can see so much coming out of that. 20 minutes from that facility is a 40,000-square-foot building on four, uh, four acres, which was donated to us, and we want to create a prep academy out of that in that building, um, and it will kind of facilitate some technical programs for youth to go through and, and get a uh, certification or be, get some kind of skill set for them to move on. Um, and then there's just a lot of little things that's coming out of those two projects. The B project is the Black and Exploited Experience. And it is, right now, we have about 172,000 children missing. Not, that's not everyone missing, but 172,000 children missing in the United States. And there's a large percentage of those children that are African-American and unfortunately, African-American and Latino. And unfortunately, because of that, no one is looking because of the color of their skin. No one is looking for these children. And so the Black and Exploited Experience will bring education awareness and campaigns um, around those um, that are missing. Awesome. So you, you have a lot of time on your hands is what you're saying. Yeah, sure. Right. <laughs> <laughs> With, right, before, yeah. right before Marlene came, this is what I'm saying, Freedom Fighter. Right before Marlene came to us, she and Lisa, who's the other <laughs> lovely young woman who you hear from um, on and, uh, at a later time, uh, she uh, and, and Lisa and Marlene were in Mississippi championing mm-hmm. for the rights of sex trafficked victims who were imprisoned. Mm-hmm. unlawfully and oh rightfully and unjustly in prison. Mm-hmm. They were often in prison because this particular case, they had no place to release. She had no address to be released. In. They stayed in prison for 14 months. Or another person is in prison for circumstances around sex trafficking that was outside mm-hmm. of her control. And when you hear the whole story, you understand that she was a minor sex trafficked all the way yes. to adulthood. And so there's a lot of... Um, attention and brains and brain power and holy ghost led um, yeah. initiative that is required to really help this uh, vulnerable group of people. And I'm yeah. so happy that we have people, freedom fighters who are going into these areas and helping them. And so I personally want to say as a sister, you uh-huh. kind of could be my mom. So an aunt, yes. and friend, auntie, <laughs> just, I love you so much. Um, I, I so respect what you're doing and I am just so blessed and honored to have you on the program and to share you with our community because you truly are an inspirational woman of God. And thank you so much to do what we do together. I'm giving you a big hug right now because I love you too. (laughs) (laughs) Take us out. How about you, Marlene? Just let people know where to find you. If people are inspired, they want to get involved, they want to help, they want to talk to you. Let people know how to find you. Sure. You can find us on all social media outlets at The Switch. Um, I can be reached personally at mcarson at jointheswitch.org. Our website is jointheswitch.org. Um, or you can reach out to Christian and she'll let you know how to get in touch with me. <laughs> Please reach out to Marlene. <laughs> <laughs> That's it, folks. Uh, you have been joining us for the Christian Business Podcast. I appreciate it. Have a blessed week and dream big. 
You've been listening to Discovering Truth with Dan Duvall. Be sure to subscribe to our channel, like our video, and share this with friends. This podcast is a production of Bride Ministries International. Visit our website at brideministriesinternational.com to enjoy the Bride Ministries Church, the Bride Ministries Institute, free resources, and to support us financially.